Hello, and welcome to Building Local Power. I'm Stacy Mitchell of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today on the show, we have Leah Douglas. Leah is a reporter who covers food and agriculture. Her main focus is corporate power, consolidation, and political economy in the food sector. She's a staff writer and associate editor at the Food and Environment Reporting Network, and you can find her work online at thefern.org. She's also a regular contributor to Mother Jones, and before that, she created the website Food and Power, which is a project of the Open Markets Institute. Leah, so nice to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like, you know, if we'd done this right, we would be doing this, recording this after work over some craft beer. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, I would uh, come up to visit in Maine and we could go to one of the many local breweries. <laughs> yeah, it would be nice. Except, you know, these days what's kind of challenging is that you go to reach for a craft beer only to find that maybe it's not a craft beer anymore because AB InBev, Anheuser-Busch, seems to be buying up uh, all sorts of beers. They bought Goose Island uh, out of Chicago they bought um, another one out of Virginia, uh, Devil's Backbone. And now there's this other thing called the Craft Brew Alliance that's going around and buying up craft beers. Uh, what's going on? One of my party tricks that no one else enjoys but me is I can always tell people <laughs> whether the beer they're drinking is actually a craft beer or not. And uh, a lot of men with beards get upset when I tell them that <laughs> beer is actually owned by ABI. Um, yeah, we've seen sort of enormous consolidation in the beer industry, particularly in the past couple of years, although it's been going on for a while. I think the stats now is that Anheuser-Busch controls one in four beers sold across the world. Wow. And uh, they, uh, of course, bought Sab Miller, which was the other sort of mega brewer, um, global mega brewer, um, for $100 billion in 2016. And um, so ABI has really been um, marching forward with acquisitions and the craft sector. I think they've bought over a dozen um, really sort of prominent craft brewers uh, just in the past couple of years alone. Wow. Wow. This really feels like it, in a way, encapsulates uh, something that's going on in the food system, which is, you know, as an eater, as a consumer, you know, you walk into the grocery store and there just is a, seems to be this huge amount of choice. I mean, all kinds of different um, milk brands and cheeses and, you know, all these different seemingly different beers lining the supermarket shelves. And yet, you know, you read the newspaper and you see farmers going out of business in incredible numbers, uh, and you hear these figures about consolidation in the food sector. How, how does that all fit together? How can those things be true at the same time? It's definitely, as a consumer, sort of hard to decode if your main interaction with food is, as with most people, just sort of going to the store and shopping. It would seem as though we're sort of living in a golden era for farmers, for food companies, um, for even, you know, small manufacturers. But the reality is that the vast majority of what we're seeing on the shelves is owned by just a few companies in each sector. And those few companies are increasingly catching on that consumers are moving towards fresher products, um, want to know where their food is coming from. And so many of the brands that we see that we might read as being healthy or locally produced, made by a small manufacturer, are in fact um, offshoots and brands that are owned by some of the biggest food manufacturers in the world, such as Kraft or General Mills. 
So when you're, um, you know, at a party telling people uh, what they're really drinking for beer, <laughs> um, what, like, if you're, if you were to talk to somebody, like, what are some of the more sort of scandalous examples uh, or more concerning examples of what's going on in the food sector right now? Sure. So we've seen, you know, pretty much any sector, um, you know, anything you can point to in the food system has really been rolled up to the point where just a few companies are controlling 50, 60, as much as 80 or more percent of the market. And, you know, one of the most often pointed to examples is the meat industry, um, where the top four processors, depending on which sector, control anywhere from 50 to over 80 percent of the market. And those are just a few companies that are operating in each of those sectors. So in reality, companies like JBS, a Brazilian meat packer, the largest beef company in the world, or Smithfield, um, which is now owned by WH Group, a Chinese company that's the largest pork producer in the world, those companies have presence in multiple meat sectors. And so um, it, the reality is that as few as two or three companies control just an enormous percentage of the meat that we're eating. So what does that mean, like, um, you know, to take chicken, for example, like, how does that actually play out for people who, who grow chickens? Sure. So this is something that, yeah, I think it's, it's important to explain sort of the, uh, the whole impact of this consolidation on the supply chain, because on its face, it's hard to understand why this would be an issue per se. Um, and so I think it's important for consumers to sort of get a sense for, for what consolidation actually means is happening to everyone that's in the supply chain. Poultry is a particularly interesting example because uh, the poultry industry is structured mostly on contract production. Uh, and by mostly, I mean overwhelmingly over 95% contract production, which means that farmers are contracted to um, the poultry company and the poultry company owns all the inputs and the chickens that the farmers are growing. So the farmer's role has basically become to sort of babysit the chickens for the you know six weeks that they're being grown in the chicken house. And then the company, the same company, um, owns the distribution that comes and that picks up the chickens, brings it to their company-owned slaughterhouse, and controls their own packaging, and often even transportation to the retail store. So that consolidation is not just that they control, you know, 50% of any one of those operations, but it's the entire the entire supply chain has become vertically integrated. Um, and the role of the farmer has become diminished. And along with that, the power of the farmer has also become diminished, where farmers are now, in most of these sectors, price takers rather than price makers, um, and are really subject to the whims of their corporate um, buyers. It doesn't even really seem like in that situation that you describe with chicken farmers, and, and I read some stats about how many chicken farmers are living in poverty. I mean, it doesn't sound like they're independent farmers at all. I mean, it's more like their employees, but maybe even without the protection of employment with these companies. I mean, if essentially you're being told what to grow and getting your chickens from this big company and they're setting all of the terms and parameters for what you do, I mean, that's not really like being an independent operator and it's not a market. I mean, it's some sort of surf kind of relationship. Yes, absolutely. And it's it's so important to identify that farmers in many of these sectors, in fact, most are um, indeed losing money in many cases, living in poverty. Um, their costs of production are way below, uh, way above, excuse me, the money that they're taking in. 
in the case of poultry, it's it's quite interesting because actually um, federal regulators have even started to identify that poultry farmers don't really look like independent businesses. There was actually a report last year from the Office of the Inspector General of the Small Business Association that was looking at the SBA's loan program for poultry farmers and identified that poultry farmers are so under the control of their of the corporate processors that the SBA was was saying, why are we lending to um, you know independent farmers, quote unquote, when in fact there's such a captured relationship there that it's hard to justify why this is independent. Um, and so that's getting some attention and momentum on Capitol Hill and certainly um, shores up what a lot of advocates and, and farmers have been saying for a long time, which is that the farmers are controlled so much by the corporate processors and uh, sort of the end buyer that they don't have the the authority and agency that we would associate with an independent business person. That's interesting about the SBA because we've seen something similar with uh, franchises. You know, so there there are franchise operators who will get small business administration backed loans similar to the poultry growers. Um, but when you look at the co- terms of their contract with the franchise company, essentially the business is being run by the franchise company. The franchise company, you know, it might be 7-Eleven, for example, or Subway. They're taking the lion's share of the profit and the benefit of that business. Um, so there's a real question about whether there should be, you know, taxpayer loan guarantees going to those firms when it's really the big guys that benefit the most. It sounds like it's this very similar thing in poultry. Um, is there real mo- movement to actually get t- to change that through something that Congress might do? Or is the SBA maybe even looking at just closing that up? It sort of remains to be seen. Um, just this week, there was some momentum. There were two uh, senators who, I believe it was Senator John Tester and Senator Chuck Grassley, who signed a letter um, saying that they uh, agreed with the recommendations that SBA Uh, that this report from the Office of the Inspector General, excuse me, put forward um, about sort of SBA refining its loan giving practices to account for the fact that um, basically related to what you were saying, that taxpayer dollars shouldn't be going towards guaranteed loans that are essentially going towards Tyson Foods, Um, that they should reevaluate whether the, the loans are actually serving the farmer or if they're serving um, the corporation. So there's been a little bit of movement on it. We'll, we'll have to see whether they're, uh, whether the SBA does move ahead with shifting its loan giving practices. Another area, in addition to, to chicken, where there are just really a lot of disturbing headlines about what's happening with farmers right now uh, is the dairy sector. And that's at least here in New England is a big deal. Um, you know, we've just have been seeing farmers go under left and right. Um, and I know dairy is, uh, is complicated in terms of how it works, but can you tell us a little bit about what's going on? Sure. So the dairy industry has been experiencing a price crisis for several years um, where farmers are now looking at prices so low that, as you said, uh, farms are really going out of business at an extremely alarming rate. I was just looking back over a story I reported uh, last year, a little over a year ago, about um, dairy cooperatives. And in that story, I cited that the new low for dairy farms was hit in 2016, 2017 was 58,000 dairy farms in the country, whereas we once had you know, over 600,000 dairy farms wow. in the country. 
And actually, as of today, that stat is now down to about 40,000. So that's even just in the last year and a half. That's another 15 to 20,000 farms that have gone out of business. I mean, it's really wow. staggering. And that, those are small businesses that are sort of the skeleton of a lot of rural towns and places that um, have always had sort of a relatively stable agricultural economy. Dairy farms have always been in every state and have always um, sort of been around to sort of keep rural communities going. And so I think it's particularly destabilizing that dairy farms are the ones um, going out of business most rapidly now. I think that's why part of the reason why it's been um, talked about a lot, because it really has a, a strong impact on the community. So there's a number of reasons, but I would say um, that corporate consolidation is at the root of some of the problems. Um, the dairy industry, like every other industry um, in the food sector, has become enormously consolidated. And in particular, dairy has an interesting structure because 80% of milk in the country is sold through a dairy cooperative. Um, and cooperatives were originally conceptualized in the sector as a means for farmers to you know, have a bargaining power against you know, powerful middlemen. Uh, but over time, the cooperatives themselves have become so powerful that now um, we see more like a relationship between the cooperative and the processor than the cooperative and the farmer. And so that has become a very uh, difficult thing for many farmers to navigate. And particularly in uh, the Northeast, there's often issues trying to switch between different cooperatives. Um, farmers will find that other cooperatives aren't taking on new farmers or that their cooperative has an unspoken agreement with a competitor that they won't sort of poach each other's farmers. Um, and so if farmers are struggling to make ends meet with the prices they have, basically their only option is to tough it out or to sell their cows. And that's why we're seeing um, such a dramatic drop in the number of farms. It's astonishing that there isn't the political will to deal with that, you know, as you said, given how much dairy farms are the backbone of rural regions of many different states. You know, I guess part of it, there seems to be this, you know, uh, there's this idea out there that, you know, maybe small farms are inefficient. They're just sort of naturally going to go away. Um, I know that we've seen in California and Arizona um, these huge dairy farms with like thousands and thousands of cows. Um, you know, is that something that, you know, if we can get cheaper milk through these big farms, I mean, isn't that something that we should be in favor of, even if we feel nostalgic about the lost dairy farm? Yeah, I think that's a great question um, to to discuss because I think a lot of people feel that way and not necessarily from a place of malice, just from a place of not necessarily understanding the context and history. And one of the things I really try to, to drive forward with my work and my reporting is to show that Nothing that's happened in the past 50 years, or you know, certainly longer than that, is the result of, of a natural process, quote unquote. It's, it's all a series of decisions that are made by, uh, by powerful decision makers. And those decisions aren't inherently good or bad, uh, but it's important to analyze those decisions as they come along and not see um, certainly the collapse of certain industries in rural America as the process of uh, the natural process of capitalism or natural process of the country's uh, evolution, which is something that I think a lot of people believe. Um, so particularly in the case of dairy, I think uh, it's important to identify that we have had in the past completely different ways of regulating our dairy industry that worked for decades. 
Um, and this is something that a lot of farmers have been pointing to in the wake of the current dairy crisis, is particularly a set of policies known as supply management, which uh, we used to sort of build our entire agriculture economy around supply management in the first half of the 20th century, which basically involves a combination of a floor price for commodities that uh, helps farmers keep their prices stable, a commodity reserve that helps uh, manage how much a supply of a certain commodity is in the market, and then conservation programs that can take um, agricultural land out of production if the supply gets out of whack. And I think that that's a set of policies that now is seen as uh, antithetical to capitalism, antithetical to American values. But we forget that that was, you know, our sort of guiding agricultural philosophy for a long time. And it was only the introduction of the idea of, quote, free market um, agricultural economy that overturned supply management and uh, moved us more towards industrial production and more towards the types of farming that we see today, such as you mentioned, you know, farms in California that have hundreds of thousands of cows uh, for dairy production. And so I think that it's important to recognize that there was a decision to make that transition um, that was federal policymakers decided that this was the way we were going to go for a variety of reasons and incentives, um, and that there are other models if we look um, to other countries, for instance, Canada has has always had certain types of supply management in their dairy economy. And if we also just look back to our own history not so long ago. That's great to hear about the growing conversation around supply management. And I want to come back and dig into that a little bit more and also just generally talk about the farm bill and public policy around agriculture. But first, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Leah Douglas, a staff writer and associate editor at the Food and Environmental Reporting Network. I'm Stacey Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. We'll be right back after a short break. Hello, everyone. Thanks again for listening to Building Local Power. I hope you're enjoying today's episode. I wanted to take just a short break today to let you know about a few of the other ways that you can get involved with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. If you like this podcast, you might also really appreciate our newsletters, and we have several. Um, The one that I'd recommend if you're particularly interested in following issues of corporate concentration, the growing movement around addressing monopoly power, is our hometown Advantage newsletter. Uh, It's got our latest writing on corporate power, companies like Amazon and Walmart, plus it's got great stories and resources on how communities are effectively fighting back. So you can sign up for the Hometown Advantage newsletter and all of our other newsletters by going to ilsr.org, our homepage, and scrolling down to the bottom and clicking on the big orange newsletter button. Thank you. All right, and we're back with Leah Douglas, staff writer and editor at the Food and Environmental Reporting Network. So just before the break, we were talking some about supply management, and I wanted to just dig in a little bit more to why that why that shift happened. So as I understand it, in the early part of the 20th century, you know, we used to have policies that, as you said, basically put a floor below which the prices that farmers were paid couldn't drop. You know, they had to get a minimum sort of price. And there was also a management on the overall supply so that the market wouldn't become so like flooded with milk, for example, that prices would crash and then farmers would be left uh, not able to to get uh, the money they'd put into producing milk back out of it. Um, and my understanding from looking at some of your reporting on this is that that system seemed to work pretty well, that it was pretty sustainable way to go for rural economies, pretty good for maintaining a good, affordable supply of food. 
tell me a little bit about the moment when we abandoned that and what how that came about. The sort of uh, point that often folks look at when we're thinking about the shift of agriculture away from regionalism and towards a sort of national and export-oriented uh, economy was in the 1970s under a secretary of agriculture named Earl Butts. And he is famously uh, known for calling on farmers to plant, quote, fence row to fence row, which would increase uh, the country's commodity harvests and enable us to better participate in sort of the global commodity economy. And that was a period of time when uh, farmers were very strongly incentivized and to shift their production away from um, maybe what we now call specialty crops, which are sort of basic range of fruits and vegetables, and towards a certain set of commodities that could be introduced into commodity exchanges and the national export markets. So that might include corn, soy, cotton, um, and other types of grains. Um, and so as a result, and sort of the, the decades uh, shortly after that, there was a massive shift towards um, producing certain types of commodities very intensively in a practice that's now called monocropping, which means you know planting the same crop over hundreds and hundreds of acres without much rotation, without uh, much uh, sort of regenerative soil practice. And that was the period of time where we saw this sort of major change taking place. It's so interesting. I feel like there are so many ways in which this country took a big wrong turn in the 1970s. Well, it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that it coincides with a lot of other um, ways that we were starting to think about, again, quote unquote, free markets and moving towards away from certain types of, of regulated markets and towards um, another approach that emphasized high levels of production and deregulation. And that, you know, I think all those policies went hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and really set up a situation where large corporations had the upper hand, you know, from a set of policies that really structured markets to decentralize production, to make sure small and mid-sized farms and companies had an opportunity to compete and to be viable towards a system where, you know, as you said, national, like oriented towards exports, oriented towards commodity crops, you know, oriented towards companies that sort of had the wherewithal to take advantage of this, um, you know, so-called free market that really wasn't all that free. It was more about kind of letting them off the leash in terms of being able to do what they wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've certainly heard more people talking about supply management um, and you've know, seen more coverage of that as an idea, certainly in the dairy industry. Um, with Canada as a, an example, people have been talking about supply management. Do you think that that's got real legs? I mean, is it possible that we could make a kind of wholesale shift in how we approach uh, farm policy to, to go back to a system more like that? You know, it's hard to say. And um, I think that it, it sort of depends on a variety of, of elements politically. Um, I think that there's uh, definitely momentum around the idea of at least, if not supply management per se, then at least of shifting um, conversations around what our sort of national farm economy looks like and who it's serving. I think that there's a lot more, um, just in the course of my reporting, I've seen a lot more conversation around you know farmers identifying, which they have identified for decades, but particularly being unified around a message that corporations and corporate actors are by far the entities best served by our current regulatory system. And that uh, for farmers, for rural communities, for consumers, which is everyone, um, that there might be uh, more investment in creating a system where 
corporations aren't the entities being best served. Um, though I, you know, I will say, I think that these are still controversial ideas. And I think that there's, um, you know, I've heard from a number of farmers that the idea of particularly drawing land out of agricultural production in order to control supply is something that's quite controversial because farmers feel very sensitive to um, wanting to work and the idea that certain land would not be worked in order to maintain a certain commodity level um, is very unappealing to a lot of farmers. And Mm -hmm. uh, there's certainly, you know, a good argument to be made there too. So Mm -hmm. I think that there's um, what's, what's interesting and I think unique about this moment is just the amount of conversation and openness to new ideas and to pushing back on this sort of system that's become um, so overwhelming and so uh, the harms of consolidation are becoming so apparent that new partnerships are being made and new bridges being built between different types of producers who can all identify that uh, this sort of era of corporate control is not serving them. Mm-hmm. That's good to hear. Um, you know, we passed another farm bill like every few years that Congress passes a big farm bill and the most recent one passed in the fall. And, you know, as I understand it, it was basically the same way that the farm bill has been for quite a long time now, which is has large subsidies, particularly for the biggest farms, the biggest commodity growers, and, you know, maybe a little bit of support around the edges for family farms, but not a whole lot. Um, but there was one significant shift in this year's farm bill, which I know is, is uh, relates to an issue that's close to your heart that you've been covering a lot, which has to do with black farmers, particularly in the South, who don't have clear title to their land um, and have been locked out of uh, USDA programs have trouble getting loans. Tell us a little bit about that issue and what the farm bill did to solve it. So yes, I've done uh, some reporting over the years on this issue of heirs property, which is a type of property ownership that occurs when land has been inherited over the course of generations without um, a will that identifies a clear heir. And so what can happen in low-income families in particular who may not have access to legal services um, consistently is that over the course of generations, the land may be owned by sort of a constellation of relatives rather than one clear heir. Um, and this is an issue for low-income families of all races and across the country, but it's been a particular issue for black farmers in the Southeast where there's a very high concentration of, uh, of heirs property owners. And so there's been decades of advocacy done on behalf of those farmers and by those farmers to change some of the laws and regulations about or in, in USDA, the Department of Agriculture, because if you don't have a clear title to your land, then you're not able to participate in most types of USDA programs, including um, getting loans to the Farm Service Agency, which is known as, quote, the lender of last resort for many for farmers who have trouble accessing capital through other means. And because farming is such a loan-dependent industry, um, FSA loans are a really essential tool that bears property owners have been boxed out of. And so this farm bill in large part due to the work of the Congressional Black Caucus, which really took on this issue, um, includes some stipulations that USDA is going to provide some services to families that own heirs property to help them figure out um, who might be a clear owner to the land and help them simplify their titles, and then also to lower the bar for accessing a farm number, which is the piece of 
information you need to get into these USDA programs. So that's the, the first um, time that this, this issue has been taken up by the Farm Bill and is um, quite exciting um, for, for many advocates who have been working on the issue for a long time. That's really good to hear. Are there, you know, much of farm policy is at the, at the federal level, you know, the farm bill, what the USDA does. Are there other things that people should be thinking about in terms of what their communities can do, what their state can do? Um, are there ways that we as, as eaters and, and citizens can take action in our own communities to address these issues and to better support a more diversified farming system? Yes, definitely. And, and that's something that I really, it's a big body of work for me is looking at uh, state and local regulations around agriculture production, because in fact, uh, there's a lot of activity there. And I think it's often underreported, at least sort of in the national media, it's hard to understand um, what's going on at the state level to regulate these types of industries, but there's a lot happening. Um, One area I think is really interesting is to look at certain laws that have been taken up by farm industry groups as sort of vehicles for deregulation, even though on their face, the laws are pitched as protections for farmers. So a couple examples of these laws are would be ag-gag laws, which are laws that um, prevent documentation of farms, um, farming operations. Um, and in some states, it goes so far as to prevent even photojournalism or other types of public interest documentation of what's happening at, at uh, large-scale farms. Another bucket of laws that's similar to this is right-to-farm laws, which exist in every state and are uh, basically were originally imagined as just protecting farmers from basic sort of nuisance lawsuits. So if the neighbor, you know, didn't like the smell of five pigs living next door, they couldn't, you know, sue the farm out of business. That bucket of laws has been taken up by the food industry and their parameters have been greatly expanded um, through lobbying at the state level to encompass all types of Um, restrictions on what farms can be sued for. So, and to be clear, when I'm saying farms, quote unquote, the the visual is more like a contained animal feeding operation, a massive, you know, industrial scale farm, not sort of a mom and pop operation. Yeah. So you're talking about these places where they've got, you know, just huge numbers of animals and confined feeding, big lagoons of waste. That's what you're talking about, this industrial scale. And essentially, they've been able to kind of, what you're saying is game state law so that uh, people who live near them may want to be documenting what they're doing or inhibiting, you know, putting some limits on what they're doing are being uh, impeded by these right to farm laws. Yes, exactly. And there's been some some great momentum um, against particularly ag gag laws and other types of state laws that um, state, you know, watch watchdog groups have been taking on to identify that this is happening and to push back on the use of these uh, local regulations to sort of be a vehicle for for deregulation of the industry. And I would say another place where there's a lot of really exciting momentum is um, community fights against individual uh, CAFOs or other types of particularly large-scale livestock farms. There's um, it seems like all the time a new sort of community campaign in an agricultural state to fend off um, the a new the introduction of a new mega livestock farm, um, and that often involves you know hyper local regulations uh, and going to local town hall and board meetings to fight these types of introduction of the, this industry. And so there's a lot of really exciting work happening at the very very grassroots level 
um, to identify how state and local laws are being co-opted to pave the way for industrial production. Is there a story you can think of from, I don't know, in the last year or so of a place that stood up to a, a CAFO, a confined animal feeding operation, if I've got that right, um, and, and one? Yes, actually. I, um, I reported a little bit on a, t- a community that is sort of out just outside the suburbs of Kansas City, Missouri, so kind of a, a sort of peri-rural community that um, was facing the ex- expansion of an existing farm to be uh, to go from sort of a couple hundred head of cattle to several thousand head of cattle. And uh, there was a lot of resistance to this from the local community. There was a nearby botanical gardens that uh, folks were really concerned about sort of tanking the tourist industry of this town or the local attractions. And they uh, started sort of a Facebook campaign and I, you know, made lawn signs and t-shirts and um, they ended up defeating the CAFO. I think they've now been through two or three rounds of um, having to sort of fend off the, the, the CAFO expansion at various types of um, state and local uh, boards but it's been really interesting to watch because it's just one example of something that actually is, uh, there's been several success stories along those lines in the past couple of years. Unfortunately, you know, in the case where those CAFOs are driven by a sort of corporate actor, what we've also seen is that if one community succeeds at sort of fending off the introduction of a new CAFO, the company can pick up and move to the next state over, the next community over where maybe the people there have less resources, maybe they have um, you know, just don't have enough capacity to fight it off and they can then plant the capo there. So that's another way where, you know, it, it can be still important to think about the national context of these mm-hmm. corporate entities, because as long as they still have that national reach, they're still able to, to sort of move their operations around and dodge some of these fights. But I will, but that particular example of Lone Jack is the name of the town in Missouri is, is quite optimistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's so true. And something that we see at ILSR across our work is we're certainly um, big advocates and provide a lot of resources for communities kind of taking things into their own hands and ways that they can stand up and fight uh, rule by corporations um, and and succeed in a lot of cases. But, you know, we also believe very much that you know, we live in an environment in which it's harder for communities to succeed because of all of the federal policies, because of the consolidation uh, in the power that these monopolies have been allowed to amass. Um, you know, it's it can be an uphill fight, and we have to deal with the, that those deeper structures if we're going to hope to put communities really on an even playing field in terms of being able to set their own future. Well, that's great. I have just a couple of last questions for you. Um, I'm going to ask you for some recommendations, both reading and drinking recommendations. Um, but first, I was actually curious to know a little bit about how did you get into this? Like, what, how did you become such a passionate advocate for food systems and so interested in reporting on it? Well, I, I would say my first sort of entree was I was a sort of foodie 1.0 when I was a young person, younger person. And um, I was really into cooking and thinking about where food came from, just purely from a consumer perspective. And uh, when I was studying my undergrad, which I studied um, agricultural production and sustainable agriculture, um, I was really, uh, my eyes were really opened by mentors and, and other and work that I did in the food system around how there was a really a broader system of 
power and control in place that I had understood as purely a consumer. Um, and so over time, through um, studying and reading about these issues and working in the food system, um, really became drawn to this area of work around corporate control, which I think it also is extremely underexamined in the food system. And I, one of my, you know, rants that I go on after enough craft beers is um, about how the food industry should be covered just like any other mega industry, whether it's technology or oil production. Um, and it's very underexamined. So I think the combination of my sort of um, my foodie background and then mixed with a uh, sort of an anti-authority streak uh, drove mm-hmm. me to <laughs> continue <laughs> years of railing on about corporate power. Nice. Well, we often um, in the show by asking our guests if they have like a reading or watching recommendation and it can be related to these issues or it could be something completely um, not related. My sort of uh, go-to book that I really love and, and recommend often and I've been thinking about recently that really changed the trajectory of my thinking about food systems is Weighing In by a scholar named Julie Guthman. Um, not, a, not a sort of popular book per se, um, kind of an academic book, but written quite accessibly about uh, how capitalism as a system has shaped our conception of food and, and how we interact with the food we eat. Um, so that's, that's definitely one I always come back to. And sort of next on my reading list, I'm really excited to read uh, the book Freedom Farmers by Dr. Monica White um, just came out. That's about the legacy of black farmers in the civil rights movement, which is a really essential history. So those are two uh, sort of an old read and a new read. Those are great recommendations. And we will put links to both of those on the show page for this episode. That's Weighing In by Julie Guffman and Freedom Farmers by Dr. Monica White. And finally, what do you uh, what do you like to drink for craft beers? You're in D.C., right? I am. I am. And, and we're lucky in D.C. There's a very vibrant craft brewery ecosystem here. Yeah. So what, sh- what should people drink when they visit D.C.? Well, D.C. Brow is the big, uh, most favorite craft beer by many. Um, and uh, I'm also partial to Right Proper, which is a local brew house. It's just a couple blocks from my house. So that's my sort of local haunt. And yeah, hyper local. So- Hyperlocal, yeah, exactly. Their brewery is just down the street, so I can walk there for my for my cravings. That sounds great. Leah, thanks so much for being on the show today. It's been great to have you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Stacey. This is great. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. We'll include links to some of our favorite pieces by Leah, along with her book recommendations. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our newsletters and connect with us on social media. If you like this podcast, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving us a rating uh, wherever you get your podcasts. This show is produced by the inimitable Lisa Gonzalez, along with Zach Fried and Hippa Murray. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Stacey Mitchell. I hope you tune in again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. 